there's this this sentiment that exists that like politics is icky, power is icky, and really both of those are mechanisms to create positive change in the world. And we need to start again, like shifting our thought from this is something that is gross and I don't want to be a part of to this is actually something if the right people are in place can be an agent for change. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Walt Drennan, and you're listening to Ask Me About My Type 1, the Q&A show all about type 1 diabetes. It is the last week of National Diabetes Awareness Month, and I couldn't think of a better topic to end it with than one that we're not entirely encouraged to bring up around this time of year. That's right, type 1s and type nuns. We're talking politics this episode, and just in time for Thanksgiving. Now, while politics isn't something that we're always encouraged to talk about openly, it's something that affects us as type 1s on a daily basis. To help me with that, I bring on my local state representative, Sarah Inamorata. Now, Sarah isn't your typical politician, and by that, I mean she's not an old white guy. She's a millennial, like me and most of you listening, and she was only just elected a year ago, so she's brand new to elected office. Her story is one that I think the Type 1 community could really benefit from hearing because she's a person that noticed injustices in her community and decided to do something about it. She sat down with me and my friend Tracy, a friend of mine from the Type 1 users group, and together we explained to Sarah what it's like to live with Type 1 in the United States. Our conversation covers a lot of topics from the state of healthcare in the United States to the recent opioid epidemic and Pennsylvania's response to it. Now I'll admit up front, This episode isn't much of a debate. We all just happen to agree on the issues that we discussed. I just want to say that this episode isn't about swaying anybody to one side of the political spectrum or the other. What I really wanted to do was share a different way that we could advocate for ourselves. Sarah gives a lot of really helpful and actionable advice so that our perspectives and life experiences can be considered when laws are being written. This episode is just about type 1s like us realizing the way politics affects us and how we as type 1s have a very unique voice in our communities and how we can use that voice to influence our political leaders or become them ourselves. But before I get into the episode, I just want to remind everyone to please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps with the show's ranking, especially on iTunes and Spotify, and helps type ones and type nuns like you find the show a lot easier. And I'll admit I love reading a nice review every now and again. You can also join in on the conversation by following the show on Instagram at AskMeAboutMyType1. Or you can leave a voicemail through the link at the end of the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in. Here's the show. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. My guests today are Sarah, a local PA rep for the 21st District of Pennsylvania, and my friend Tracy from the Team One Youngsters Group. So let's start with our introductions. Sarah, would you like to (laughs) let the people know who you are? Let all the people know. My name is Sarah Namorado. I'm a Pittsburgh native and the state representative for the 21st district in Pennsylvania. So that means nothing to most people. So what that means is that I represent parts of Northern Allegheny County and parts of the city of Pittsburgh and Harrisburg. 
and I'm newly elected as of uh, last year and was sworn in on January 1st of 2019. So I'm 11 months in, so I'm just learning to walk. And really the whole impetus of me running for office was to bring the community's voice to Harrisburg and bring transparency to the role uh, of government because I think that people don't trust government anymore. And that requires some big systemic changes, but it starts with the individuals who are in office and what they're doing to bridge the gap between the community and understanding and bringing transparency to the role and figuring out how to co-govern and bring residents' voices to the actual legislating process. And that's really the whole whole thing, just kind of bringing the power back to the people. So that's, you know, that's why I ran. That's what we're trying to do in the office. And that's why I'm here today to learn about what it's like to live with type one. Yeah. And part of the reason why I wanted you on was to show what type ones could do or how they could become more active in their communities, not just, you know, Southwest PA, but, you know, all over the country, particularly in the U.S., where our healthcare system is influenced by the government. And there's a lot of aspects of it that are literally killing us. And so I thought it'd be great for people to hear your story and learn about different ways that they can become more active and get their perspectives heard when legislation is being written up. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for being here. And my friend Tracy from the Team One Youngsters group. Tracy, introduce yourself, who you are, what you're doing, your diagnosis story, and how long you've had your type 1. So my name is Tracy Berg Fulton. I live here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I am actually one of Sarah's constituents. I live within her, her area of purview. I am a software engineer for a national nonprofit. I am coming up on 25 years of diagnosis on the 1st of December, so just outside of Diabetes Awareness Month. So I was diagnosed at the age of nine, and I'm kind of what they call a classic presentation. So I was a super active kid. I was involved in sports and everything like that. And all of a sudden, like, I, I started feeling like really sick. Like I, I, I thought that maybe I had a urinary tract infection. So I went to my mom and I was like, mom, I think I'm sick. I think I need to go to the doctor. And she was like, okay, well, you know, I don't think you're actually, you know, like this is a thing that happens to kids. And so I started like drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And of course, like when you drink, you go to the bathroom, but in type one, you're also trying, your body's trying to get rid of the excess sugar that's in your body. And I have this very clear memory, and I don't know why this sticks out in my mind, of uh, the old Parkway Center Mall uh, in Pittsburgh, which is, if you're into, like, abandoned mall blogs and things like that, it's on there. I have this very clear memory of, like, being, like, school shopping there with my mom or something, and going into the food court and using, like, whatever money I had scrounged to buy, like, a large, like, pop from the from the thing and drinking it and then immediately going to the bathroom and then repeating that process like within like a 10 minute span and i think that was when my mom was like oh, maybe she really is sick so that i mean like in between that initial ask and this it was like maybe a week and i went to the doctor and i went to the bathroom like three times in the waiting room in like the span of 20 minutes and the doctor took me back and kind of like told him what was going on and he was like, well, can you go to the bathroom for me? And I was like, yeah, sure can. So I went into the bathroom, like in the, like actually in the exam room. And he did uh, like a diastix. So the urinary test tip um, right there in the office. 
and it was like black. So it was like large ketones, tons of sugar. And he was like, okay, so we're done here. He's like, I, he's like, I'm willing to bet my license that you have type one diabetes. He's like, so I'm going to call children's hospital. You're going to go there right now. So I have this, the other second clear memory I have of this is uh, leaving that office, which was in Green Tree and driving down uh, Green Tree Hill with my mom and just like looking at her and being in the front seat, which I never got to ride in the front seat and like being in the front seat and looking at her and asking her if I was going to die, which is a horrible thing for a child to ask their parent. Like just like looking and seeing this face on her that I'd never ever seen before. So I then spent a week in children's hospital just kind of getting stabilized and doing like injections on an orange. I had to learn, I had, they forced me to have a low in a hospital, which I, I gather that they don't do anymore, which is probably good. <laughs> but yeah, I was kind of rolled out of there and I actually rolled out of there doing my own shots. So my mom does them like the way that nurses do, which is probably the proper way, which is they stand back and they stab you. Uh, so I was like, no, this is, this is not going to work. So I, I kind of been managing my diabetes since day one. So here we are. Wow. So what did it what did it feel like when you guys were that young and having to have that kind of responsibility? Tracy, what do you think? Well, you were you were younger than I was. Yes, I was twelve, I was so nine. I was slightly older. Yeah, because twelve year olds are extremely responsible. I was, I was very responsible. <laughs> at night too. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it's very weird. I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, like my parents really kind of set the tone. I don't know like if this is just like, this is just the way that my family is, mm-hmm. but, but we're very pragmatic. So it was just kind of like this, well, I guess this is happening now and, mm-hmm. and you know, needing to just like get on with it. And in a lot of ways, like my parents, you know, with me wanting to, wanting or needing, I haven't quite figured out what the distinction is there. Wanting to be like in the driver's seat of this, I think in a lot of ways, like both helped and hurt me. I think it was really helpful because I had to, I had to learn to do it. You have to learn to do it at some point. You know, you grow up, you move on, you want to go live elsewhere. And at the same time, like when I got older, I was kind of like, oh, I really wish that I maybe would have had a few more years of like not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I think the way that just treatment is so different now um, with so many kids being on pumps and being on different therapies, it's much easier for them to like gradually take control and maybe gradually assume responsibility for it. But when we used to all be, everybody was doing injections, it was very rare to be on a pump at that time. It was kind of like, well, someone's got to do it. Again, my family's just very practical. It was just kind of like, okay, well, this is happening now and we're just gonna soldier on. So it was scary, but you got to do what you got to do, right? And, you know, everybody says this with, with, like, shots. Like, oh, I can never give myself a shot every day three times a day. And I was like, well, if it's the difference between dying, <laughs> you'll find a way. There are strategies around this, folks. Yeah. You know? We're a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for, especially in those times when you have to. Like, for type 1 diabetes, you have to give yourself shots or else you can't eat. Like I said, I was a little slightly older, but still, I think my parents took on the brunt of it, like the care aspect of it. And like we were saying about the differences between insulin then and now, it was a lot more regimented. Like you have to, you had to take your shots at a specific time of day for it to work the way you needed it to throughout the rest of the day. So we, they just kind of put me on a schedule for like eating, like I was in school. So like, you know, lunch was the same time every day, um, even like a new country, like, you know, you can find those like patterns and routines um pretty easily especially when it's a new place like you're just making them up so Mm -hmm. i think 
a lot of my inability to accept it at the at that point was just because it was so new and everything was so new. It was hard to like place it as something dramatically life changing because everything in my life at that point was changing, and I had grown up moving around a lot at that point. So it was just kind of one of those things that happened, it, and it wasn't until a few years later when I was back in the states when I was like, oh wow, this thing isn't going away, and like I have to deal with it myself. And that was in my college years when my parents weren't there to take care of it, and I was solely responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any context on the kind of research that's happening around finding a cure versus research to make managing type one and what resources and energy are being put into both? I would say cure efforts are a lot more popular in a sense like that's where all the fundraising or a lot of fundraising dollars go but management i think at least in the last maybe five ten years has like really exploded like there's a lot more options there's a lot better options especially in the tech like silicon valley area so type one affects everybody there's a lot of people in silicon valley that have loved ones or have type ones themselves so they just put their skills to use and started coming up with like cgm technology and like the closed loop system. So personally, I think the future is in like managing it or making it so easy to manage that we're basically don't have to think about it anymore. Whereas cures, just medically speaking, cures are hard to find like for anything, not just type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. But I do think a lot of the focus is the cure is a very real goal for a lot of organizations like JDRF. That's their whole impetus is to raise money for a cure. So I'm not exactly sure where like the percentage breakdown is. I think it's more towards a cure, like more money goes towards cure efforts, but I think people are starting to realize technology has a lot of really positive future outcomes. Not necessarily cure us, but make us or make it easier to deal with and make it so that we don't have to think about it as much. I've been involved in a couple clinical trials, one here in Pittsburgh particularly that was looking at vaccine as a way of helping people who, like kids who are early in diagnosis, again, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder. So your body is just like freaking out and attacking the cells uh, in your pancreas that produce insulin. So the thought was if they can trigger that immune response to attack something else, that it might delay or slow down the progress of type 1. So that is like the autoimmune response trigger is one avenue that research is going down. I think like one of the challenges is, again, because it's an autoimmune disease, right? So transplants and injecting things into your body triggers that autoimmune response, which usually tends to kill things. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of times, like every time there's a new story that's like, diabetes cured in mice. It's like, all right, that's cool. Call me in 10 years when they've done the the translation study, when they've like moved it to humans, because there's just something about all the human factors that like everything that's almost there just goes. So I, I, I hope for a cure. Like I would love for that to happen, but I'm not holding my breath. And I think that, you know, the, the future is really in again, management and treatment and like lessening that burden so that diabetics have better quality of life across the board. So that we're spending less time thinking about our diabetes and more time like living our actual lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think our future is going to be in technology. I think tech is going to catch up with us faster than we biologists mm-hmm. are going to be able to figure it out because type one has been around for thousands of years and we still, we're kind of just like cracking the surfaces as to like where it's coming from and 
what happens or why it happens. So, yeah, yeah it's a very complex condition. It's been less than 100 years since we've had insulin. Yeah. Like, it, like I, I think about that, like, on the regular. Um, so my grandfather was 87 when he died, and he knew people that would have died from type 1 diabetes because there was no insulin. Like, he would have known that time before that. And I think about that regularly. It was like, oh, yeah, if I would have been born, you know, when my great-grandfather was, I'd have been dead. I think about that all the time. And I just think, like, how far we've come just in a very relatively short time span, Mm -hmm. you know, compared to the millennia before that, where it was like, "Mm, good luck. You know, it's really kind of shocking how far we've come just in such a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's get into your questions. And then, like I said before, type 1 timeout. If our answers involve something that you just don't understand, you can Mm -hmm. assume that it's about type 1, and then you just call type 1 timeout. Everything pauses right there, and we'll tell you exactly what we're talking about. So my first question is, what is the most annoying question that you get about your type 1 so that if it's on my list, I can cross it off (laughs) and not ask it? (laughs) Proactive, yeah. I like that. Oh, boy. This is a hard one. You you get a lot of really... Like strange questions, like I, I, yeah, I mean, amongst type ones, like when we greet each other, you know, it's like immediately, like, what age were you diagnosed? And like, like that's, you know, we we leave with all these questions, right? What what pot are you wearing? Are you wearing a pump? Or like, the, you know, we have our own series of like greeting questions, but mostly from non non diabetes people, it's the have you tried insert thing here question, mm. and I think that you know that that comes from a place of love. But the thing that I wish that people knew about that is like, yeah, maybe we've bloody tried everything. Like, like we would really try just about anything to be cured. And I mean, I've gotten, have you tried yoga? Have you tried electric shock? No. Uh, (laughs) Have you tried yoga? Have you tried electric shock? Celery water, okra. Cinnamon is the big one. Have you have you tried have you tried cinnamon? Have you heard of cinnamon? Have you heard of cinnamon? I'm like in cookies. Sure, yeah, great, <laughs> love it, here for it. Uh, but I just like I guarantee you, like yeah, we've probably heard about it, and it probably doesn't work. Like yeah. crystals aren't gonna help me. Yoga might help because like moving helps, mm-hmm. right? That will lower your blood sugar, but it's not a cure. It's like there's literally nothing we can do. Aside from take insulin and like do the diet, do diabetes that will help us. So yeah. I think like those have you tried questions are, are one of my own personal like nails on a chalkboard yeah. moments. But, so I feel that. Avoid those. Yeah, yeah. avoid those. <laughs> Don't give us your cure recommendations. Yeah. Cross those out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think my question is should you be eating that? Because they always assume that, you know, diabetes in general in American, you know, public is seen as something that we did to ourselves because we ate too much sugar or we just didn't take care of ourselves. And so that, but the, the funny thing in is in the U.S., our diet is terrible across the board. So like mm-hmm. not anybody that's asking that is probably not eating a bunch of stuff that they shouldn't be eating. So like, I really don't like the hypocrisy of it and then just the nosiness of it. It's their job to make sure I'm eating what I should be eating. So like, mm-hmm. no, I'm... I, I'm an adult. I can pick what I should be eating or want to be eating. Yeah. And then it's like, look at your own plate. Like, should you be eating that? So that's one. I think like what Tracy's saying, like they're trying to be helpful, but they're also, it's again, it's like just assuming that you know more than you do and trying to discredit what I know about it. The well-intentioned ego. Right. Yeah. And But like, yeah, like you said, it's driven from a place of like, 
caring, but also in a place of being very ego driven. Like I know, I know better. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. I, so, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I read an article once I read the headlines, on the yeah. internet. Like, yeah, I saw this on the internet. <laughs> like, uh, like, oh gosh, why don't we all know then? Yeah. And it's, you know, there's sometimes where where you've got, I mean, like if I say the first, you've got enough spoons, do you know what that means? No. All right. So like the, like if you Google spoon theory, there's a longer explanation of this. It's like you get kind of a budget of how much energy you've got to deal with things for the day and like what the, like the budget of spoons and once you're out, you're out. It's like, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I can do this today. I can talk to you about why, like, yes, why, yes, I can eat this or why I don't want to eat this right now because my blood sugar is high or mm-hmm. why cinnamon won't work for type one diabetics. Like there's like, sometimes you've got that energy and you can expend it and like, you can like maybe pass on a little bit of information and there's other times you're like, no, nah, I just, no, mate, tell me all about cinnamon, please. Like, there's other times where you just don't, you don't have it that day. And it's like, okay, I'm just going to let this one pass. So there's really like an interesting like balance of, do I have the energy for this today? <laughs> that Yeah, that's because those questions don't stop. Because, like, again, yeah. type 1 is a lifelong condition, so, like, we're answering them every, not every day, but, like, you know, for the rest of our lives, basically. Mm-hmm. So the kind of the, the constant, like, like nagging and chipping away at you, like, yeah, there's days where I'm a lot better at ask, answering questions or, like, informing people. And there's other days that I just don't want to. Like, I feel like I don't have the energy or the spoons mm-hmm. to do it. So you guys are my neighbors, which is, like, really cool. We live, like, within a mile of one another. So what do you what do you wish that elected officials knew about their neighbors that are living with type 1 or like people in positions of power people who have access to be able to modify and change systems I I mean I guess I just wish that they understood just how far reaching diabetes is into our lives it determines what we do for work it determines if we get married, when we get married, it determines where we live. It, I mean, like in a, in a literal sense, like if I have contemplated leaving the country on many occasions, I actually did leave the country to go live in the UK because there I wouldn't have been able to get insurance because I, I aged off my parents' insurance before the American Affordable Care Act came into being and there was no way forward. I wouldn't have been insurable for any amount of money. And I was like, well, this is, I've either got to like take a job that I didn't really want to do that was very much against like my own moral principles, or I've got to leave, or I've got to go somewhere else. So I did. And I I think like, I I wish that people understood that it's like, I mean, it's even things like, like how you express your free, how you express your own speech, right? Mm -hmm. I am, I am afraid to go to a protest because if I get arrested, and I go to jail, mm-hmm. people have died in jail because they were not given their insulin because people think they're faking. Yeah. Right? And I am a privileged cisgender white lady, right? And English is my first language. I have like all the privilege in the world. And I imagine how much more that's compounded if you take away those layers of privilege mm-hmm. and how dangerous that can be. We can be discriminated against at work and it can be very hard to prove because it's like, oh, well, you know, she didn't perform well. Well, yeah, my blood sugar was 400 because my insulin pump was beeping and blocked. Right. Yeah. I needed 15 minutes to like change my pump. 
and wait for my blood sugar to come down and then do the tasks. Like we can be discriminated against at work. A lot of diabetics don't realize we're covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Hi, your pancreas is broken. That's a permanent disability. Mm-hmm. I think kind of just in general, it's good for everybody, everybody to know that type one is difficult. It's hard because there's the stressors of type one, but then we also have lives. Like we have to live our lives. So we have to do both basically. And we don't really get any breaks from it. And type one stress is really difficult to maneuver because usually when something stresses you out, you take a break from it, you step away and reassess. You can't do that with type one. We have other things that we're going through that makes both type one and life harder. So they both kind of influence and affect each other. And knowing that there are certain kind of like, I guess, systemic things that make that harder. So like our healthcare system, for example, we spend a lot of time talking to insurance companies. We don't like doing it, but we have to because we need certain things so that we can keep on living um, or make it easier for us to manage our type one. It's kind of like the biggest thing that I can think of is just that it's hard. And the fact that it's difficult to see, it makes it even harder because society in general just doesn't really get diabetes. So like that kind of general concept of uh, diabetes is just not where it should be, I think. And yeah, so there's like a lot of things kind of going against us. And we live in a world that isn't built for us, basically. So there's a lot of little things that I think that probably type ones don't even notice because we've just been going through it for Mm -hmm. so long without that kind of support, a specific kind of support. But yeah, so I think it's just kind of the general difficulty of it all. It's, it's everything. It's, you know, my husband and I got married when I was just barely 23. And I love the guy. <laughs> we just celebrated our 11th anniversary yesterday. Um, but Congratulations. Yeah, exactly. It's we're just like getting married at 23 is maybe not everybody's ideal solution. But it was like, this is a means to an end. People get married, you know, people elope when they'd rather like, wait and have a, have a, have a big family wedding just so they can get on insurance. Mm-hmm. People take jobs or stay in jobs that they don't want to have insurance. I know a ton of people who would love to start businesses, who would love to be consultants or love to like do their own thing, mm-hmm. but they can't because that would mean they would lose access to insulin or the pumps or their syringes or their doctors. It's all of the things. It's literally every aspect of your life diabetes touches. Yeah. That's really powerful. And you have some unique experiences too. I'd be curious to hear from you both about the the experiences you have dealing with the modern American healthcare system and insurance. And Tracy, especially you, like you have an experience dealing with a nationalized healthcare system and kind of what's what are the pros and cons of each and where are there where are the points of of tension in the system today that you think that we could we should be as elected officials be focusing in on? No, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. Like, yeah, there's a yeah, lot no. in that question. No, 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 there's a lot multi-layered. Um, so when I was cared for in the NHS, I was cared for in the NHS in Northern Ireland and also in the West of Scotland, which are two of the larger, which are larger NHS trusts. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that my care was absolutely amazing. In America, we have this kind of what I like to call an illusion of choice. Like, well, you can choose your doctor, you can choose your hospital, you can choose these things. And only, and that's only partially true, because you can only choose them if they take your insurance. And mm-hmm. then there's all the other layers of like, how they accept your patients. But under the NHS, it's like, okay, well, you live in this postcode. These three GP practices are there. Pick one. Go sign, out, sign on to the GP practice. And, you know, that, that process is really easy. Again, they tend to be very close to you. My GP practice was literally like 500 feet from my door, which was wow. pretty awesome. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like 
the guy is right there. And what's interesting about the NHS, and especially in Scotland, at the time, the prescription fee, if you had to pay for a prescription, was £5.25. pence. At the time, it was about nine seventy-five. is almost a one to two. But if you are chronically ill, if you have diabetes, if you have asthma, you don't pay anything for prescriptions, diabetes-related or otherwise. So if you have insulin, whatever, you don't pay for your birth control. You don't mm-hmm. pay for antibiotics because they, the assumption is, is that caring for a chronic illness is an extra burden and that your prescription fees should not add to that burden. And the first time I went to pick up my insulin, I was kind of like, all right, brace yourself. And I went, you know, went into the pharmacy and, you know, again, this is the neighborhood pharmacy, which is literally right next door to the GP practice. And like, I'd gone in there to buy like shampoo and things like that. And I was like, okay, I'm here to pick up my insulin. And I pulled out my, my cash card and the guy looked at me like, no, you don't pay for, I think his actual words were, we don't make you pay for insulin here, hen. And I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. So like that, that, that like experience of like, I went home and cried. Yeah. It's like I had seen like my parents, you know, paying for my insulin. And like, I had an idea of how expensive it was. And then to just be given it, I was like, this is, this is magic, you know? And there are, there are limitations. Like, yeah, you may have to wait for certain procedures, but when you enroll, you generally will get letters, you know, scheduling you for your podiatrist appointment for diabetics. We have to look after our Mm -hmm. feet. You'll get a letter saying, okay, we've scheduled you in for the eye exam on this date. If that doesn't work for you, just give us a call. We'll schedule it. We'll we'll like move it around. Mm -hmm. So like, that waiting time is similar to what I'd wait for <laughs> wait for an appointment here because mm-hmm. of the way that like doctor's offices work here. Like, like that that wasn't really like a, a, a thing that I worried about. Yeah. I just knew that it would be taken care of. And here it's all right, I gotta go to a doctor. Is this doctor gonna take my insurance? Do I need prior authorization? How much is this going to cost me? Have I hit my deductible? Have I hit my co-insurance? Have I hit my out-of-pocket max? Have I hit my family max? How much money do I have in my HSA? How much, you know, it's this constant, like constant series of questions that are opaque, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's things about formulary. So formulary and non-medical switching, which is your insurance company has decided that, no, we don't think you need this medication. We're going to change your prescription to this other thing. Mm-hmm. And if you want the thing that you were actually prescribed by your doctor, you got to fight us for it. And again, thinking about privilege, like I work from home, I'm a software engineer. I have the time to spend four hours on the phone with them and I will, and I will, I will win <laughs> because I've been at this a long time. But if you work shift work, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's hard to spend four hours on the phone during business hours to fight with your insurance four or five times to get the one, the one question you've got mm-hmm. answered. It's not set up for patients to win here, right? It's adversarial. It's, we don't want to pay. You want us to pay with a nationalized health system. It's there's no, there's no adversary. Patients aren't the adversary. You know, patients aren't stones to be squeezed money from, right? They're just patients. They're your neighbors. It's, it's just not a thing. Like I can't, I can't express to people how different the dynamic is. Mm-hmm. Like when you go to the doctor, when you go to the hospital, when you have any interaction with a nurse, when you have, when you call the NHS 24 hour helpline, the interaction is so very different 
that can't explain it. It's very hard to put into words. Yeah. I Well, you're touching on, right? I think when we talk about revamping our healthcare system, we talk about the, the technical pieces that will change and not necessarily the societal shift that needs to happen. And what are our priorities? What are our values as Americans? What do we what do we want our systems to say about who we prioritize in our society? And I don't, I think that's kind of the bigger, more philosophical shift that also needs to happen in tandem with a lot of technical fixes. Yeah. So a big solution kind of band-aid kind of thing that's been popular in the last year, I think in the type one community is people going to Mexico or traveling to Canada because there you don't need a prescription and you can just buy insulin, you know, at cost basically, or relative to what it is here. And again, like Tracy's saying, like not everybody can do that. Like not everybody has the money to put into their car, let alone to pay for insulin in the US. And like I see those stories and it yeah, it is like it's a, you know, solution, but again, it's not it doesn't fix anything. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna it's kinda we're just kind of offloading our problems onto different countries. And again, like even in Mexico too, like their prices compared to us are very different and it's a lot more reasonable for us. But in Mexico, it's still expensive for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Like there are a lot of people that can't afford those prices and it's worldwide too. So not just the U.S. Mm -hmm. U.S. has the most expensive insulin. But again, there's, you know, countries in Africa where $10 vial of insulin, that's a lot of money for people. So yeah, it is a big, it's not just in the U.S., but in the U.S. we, we feel it pretty, pretty hard, I think. How much do you guys pay out of pocket for your insulin per month? I guess insulin and <clears throat> the other things that you need oh to manage type 1. Try not to look at that, but no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, my, so the job that I have now, again, like I've had a lot of jobs where I just took the job because of the insurance. Like I remember I was about to turn 26 and I was kind of like just feeling out my options. And it was just before the uh, American Health Act came into play. And so I started like calling up people. And they were just flat out saying like, no, like we, we're not going to cover you. And after they asked for like, you know, my slight medical history and I, oh yeah, I have type one. It's like, no, we, we're not going to mm-hmm. cover you. It's like, and then I literally asked the guy, I was like, what am I supposed to do? It's like, and he said, like, I don't know. And he just hung up. So then, and then around that time I was looking for a job because I just uh, left uh, grad school and I started, and I started looking at jobs that I probably wouldn't have considered otherwise, just because they came with benefits. Mm-hmm. And I did spend a couple of years in a couple of different jobs that I just did not want to be in. And the thing about that is that it, it kind of it can like wear on you and drain on you because like you're doing something you don't like yeah. that isn't fulfilling like you know to whatever that means for a person and it adds on to like the need for healthcare because like your mental health is just like severely taking a hit because you're doing these things that you don't want to do but you don't want to die either so like there's that weird middle ground where mm-hmm. where um yeah how is that freedom yeah exactly yeah. where is the choice in that so I think now my costs are and again it's probably uh. $100 a month for the, just the insurance, but I met my deductible at the beginning of the year. So like January 1st, yeah. that was like, that was like 1200 something or other. So mm-hmm. yeah. So, but because of all the insulin talk on the news and in Congress, like my uh, healthcare or my insurance company, they gave, they give everybody a hundred dollar coupon now. So like with the copay, so usually the copay is $125, but now it's just 25 mm. for however long they decide that those coupons are good. Mm-hmm. And I can literally see it on the receipt. Like, so it's not that the fact that they dropped it to $25, but it's that they just, they're just giving everybody these coupons. So like, you know, keep it, it basically it's just a, a way for, to keep everybody quiet for the time being. Yeah, while so it's the like companies the are still getting that money. Yeah. Right. It's just now subsidized in some way. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I think that, you know, what I've read about recently is that folks, 
crossing the borders to go get insulin. And then also this thing that's coming up, like go to Walmart and get insulin because they have cheap insulin at Walmart. Like, what can you talk about what what that's all about? So you remember that old janky insulin I told you about at the beginning of the show? The pork one. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not pork. It's human. It's RNA, I think. Yeah, it's it RNA. Is. So it's basically, it's synthetically derived, but it's still the same idea. So it's very, you still have to like take it at very exact times throughout the day or else like you'll, you'll catch the, the peak of the wave, as it's called, at a like, bad time. So basically you would take a shot in the morning and then the wave of it will, should peak at around noon, which is when you typically eat lunch. Again, so like some people can live off of it, like it works for them, but it, it's not, it's a very, it's an obsolete insulin for a reason. Like it doesn't work for everybody. Mm. So nowadays we dose our insulin based on what we're eating. Back then you had to eat based on what you were dosing. So like it was very, there's a lot more freedom now in terms of the way we do it now with the more synthetic, um, faster acting insulins that have like a slower, a smaller peak, but they act really quickly and they're in and out of your system a lot faster than those other ones. So Walmart. That is an option, yes, but it's not one for that everybody can take. Yeah, and I think a lot of people reach for that Walmart insulin as a, like, well, you just want Cadillac insulin. Why don't you, this <laughs> this will work. Why don't you just use this? And it's like, no, that's not the same. First of all, the quote-unquote Cadillac insulin that we're taking is almost 30 years old itself. And the stuff that you're asking me to, to compromise on is 50 or 60 years old. Wow. Right. And it, uh, 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 yes, it works. It will absolutely work and save you in an emergency. But all of these things that are coming out are like, well, you should talk to your doctor about prescribing this. And like most young doctors, most, most newly practiced doctors have never been taught how to prescribe this because it's not the standard of care. Mm-hmm. It's not the standard of care in 2019. A lot of these insulins don't work in insulin pumps. A lot of these insulins don't necessarily work for, again, for people who don't have a set schedule. You know, for the short-acting insulin, the insulin you take to cover meals, you need, like, a lead time. So you need lead time to, to, like, walk away from whatever you're doing, test and dose, wait 30 minutes, and then go eat. And, like, for people in precarious employment situations, Mm -hmm. that's not going to cut it, right? And if you skip eating, the lows that you can have from these insulins are devastating, are like super, super bad for some people. I've been there. It's not fun. Mm -hmm. And again, it's, I'm not okay as an American. I'm not okay as, as a human being saying, well, if you're poor, figure this out, have Mm -hmm. this second rate insulin that I just want to say for the record, the fact that it's over the counter and the fact that it's $25 right now is like depending on the beneficence of Walmart and the manufacturer that can change at literally any Mm -hmm. moment they decide it is not a long-term solution Mm -hmm. for type one diabetics. It is a solution that if you are in like a really tough spot, it can save you. It's better than not taking insulin and dying, but it is dangerous and it's fraught with peril and it's not it's not a, a one-on-one thing. It's not like I could take my pump off today, yeah. switch to RNNPH, and just like carry on like I am. <clears throat> so it doesn't it doesn't equal the same stuff that we take yeah. now. So if I were to do exactly what I do now with that stuff, I would probably kill myself. 
and people don't realize that or they go online try to figure like hey can you guys help me out like what's the ratio and they'll get 10 different answers mm -hmm. that work for those 10 different people yeah. so it's a really it, it is scary trying to figure out you know test on yourself what dosage you should be taking and the mistakes can be deadly obviously yeah i mean to your point that we have a two well, we have a multi-tiered healthcare system. And if you are wealthy or you're employed by a major corporation, you're essentially okay. But those who are uninsured, underinsured, working for themselves, uh, those who have chronic ailments, those who, you know, are trying to manage and navigate this this world and this economy and this American society, it's like extremely extremely difficult. And, you know, to to your point, talking about the mental health burden that is placed on individuals who have to deal with the frustrations of a system that's designed to turn profit for a few. And I mean, I, I was uninsured when I left my job and was starting my own business. There was one month that I missed my payment. And when you miss your payment, uh, for insurance, they cancel it, and there's no way to get insurance until it's open enrollment again. So this happened in February because I was figuring out the finances of like cash flow and in and out business, right? I'm a first time business owner and was figuring that out, missed a payment. And I thought much like a credit card, like, oh, they'll give me a fee. I can, I have the money now. I'll pay it. I thought like my auto pay was set up. So I called them to do that. And they were like, no, it's canceled and you don't have it anymore. And I was like, Okay. And I was like, well, how do I get insurance? And called everyone. Like we're calling elected officials, calling all these healthcare advocacy groups. And there was just nothing, nothing to do. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just uninsured for the next 11 months. And like, that was scary. And I, I participated in health studies and I did one on asthma and my lung ended up collapsing in the middle of the night. I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that my heart hurt and that I couldn't breathe. And I was calling the doctor who was the head of that study and they weren't picking up. And I was like, if I had insurance, I would call 911 now because I don't know what's happening to me. But I'm not because I can't afford to. And I can't imagine that that decision being made every day by people on whether to get treatment, whether to deal with something that could be deadly versus what they have to pay, right? They're not, people are not getting the care that they need, whether it's something that's happening in an emergency situation or something that's happening in, in the management of some sort of chronic ailment. So that's one of the things that kind of drove me to get involved in politics was the fact that this is so, so unfair at its core. And that if we do want a just society, if we do want actual freedom, kind of the the basic building block of that is to be able to take care of your health and well-being and it not be contingent on your zip code, on the income that you have, or the job that you possess at any given time. And I think that's, I mean, personally, that's, that's the path I think we need to move towards. The rest of the world thinks we're absolutely bananas. They don't understand it at all. <laughs> you know, know, I lived with I lived with people from all around the world and they ask them about health insurance. They ask them like, mm -hmm. how does it work? How do you see a doctor? And I like I try my best to explain it. And they're like, 
why do you tolerate this? And I was like, we don't have a choice, mate. Like, this is just literally how how it works for us. And he's yeah. like, why aren't people in the streets rioting? And it's like, because we'd lose because, our insurance. Well, yeah, they have to, Probably. you're busy working three jobs. Yeah, it's like, we're, we're, we're a little busy right now. Like, I, like, it's, it's 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 all of the things. It's all of the things. The it reminds me of Breaking Bad. Like Breaking Bad was like this huge cultural moment. Like in television, like people understood. Like Americans understood the story. Like you know, this guy he gets cancer. He needs to make money to like pay for his cancer treatments and to leave to his family because like in the story, cancer was going to kill him. So like he was trying to plan for his like mm-hmm. legacy. And then like there's a like a meme or a joke online or the Nordic version of Breaking Bad. Oh, he gets cancer and then gets treated for it and his family doesn't have to pay for anything. So like <laughs> it's a show and then, and then I feel like that part of it just kinda like just goes over like Americans' heads because like, oh like, like Oh yeah, sure. Can- cancer in- diagnosis will bankrupt you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's places in the world where that does not have to happen. You do not have to start a meth empire to be able to pay for your cancer treatment. And it's just funny how, like, it, again, it's like just a foreign concept to other people that we have to, that we go through so much to get so little out of it, too. Like, even the healthcare that we do get isn't as good as it is in other places. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, like, since being, like, going from running my own business and paying, I don't know, whatever, $200 a month for insurance and then maybe up to $100 in co-pays to see doctors, which means I never really went to the doctor, mm-hmm. to being elected and having state health insurance and you know everyone's like you get Cadillac health insurance I was like even of that that terminology that very nature is saying that there's like I have I'm given privilege over other people because I have a I have a state job because I'm an elected official and uh, the individuals who work in our office also get that same level of care but it's like I think it costs like $25,000 a year. I was like, that was definitely not what I was paying. And like, I don't have co-pays. I've gone to the doctor. I went to the dentist for the first time in seven (laughs) years. Like, like, yes, people will use healthcare more if they have it, but it's not accounting for how much we're not using healthcare to maintain our health and well-being and be the healthiest people we can in in our community. So yeah, it's just, it's very interesting to like have gone from that to my current my current status. But to your point from before too, it's like I went to go find a primary care doctor and I called and they were like, oh, okay, about five months or so mm-hmm. before you get in. I was like, all right, sure, put <laughs> yeah, on the calendar. Put on the calendar, yeah. I think that you know the that someone said in the news the other day. I was like, well, if we give everybody health insurance, they're just going to overuse it. And I'm like what does that mean? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, you go to the GP once a year and like have them check your heart and get your vaccines. Like, oh yeah, well, you you huge moocher, you. Like we seem really concerned with people getting something quote unquote for free yeah. without acknowledging the fact that like a lot of this stuff is like deeply unpleasant. Like I don't think anybody goes for a colonoscopy for fun. Like, I mean, <laughs> you do you, but like, like no one's doing this stuff for fun. This is just like, we need... You know, we, we, we need care. Like, I really don't think people are, like, juicing the doctor for funsies. Like, I just don't think that that's, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's idea of a fun Friday night. Like, that's not it. Like, we all just don't want to be bankrupt if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. you know? 
Yeah, it's a very, we're very uh, reactive to things. Like we hold off going to the doctor as long. I do it all the time. I do too. Um, I have pains that I've had for like, you know, a couple of years. Like, ah, don't worry about it. It's not, doesn't like hurt me that much mm-hmm. or it goes away. And like that it could have been something. It, obviously it wasn't, but it's just the idea that it's easier for people just to put it off as opposed to addressing it. So like things like, you know, cancer or type one, like what if someone's afraid to go to the doctor to get their type one, their pre-diagnosed type one. So like they don't know that they have it, mm-hmm. but they do and they're, you know, dying essentially. And there have been people that have done that. It's like they get die, they die before they're diagnosed or they ration their insulin. We're the product of the system that we're living in. And like people else are like, why don't you just like riot or like say something about it? We kind of just kind of gotten used to it. The fact that like Breaking Bad was so popular and nobody really noticed the underlying cause mm-hmm. of the doll was like, oh, it's because insurance is crazy. That's the entire setting of that show mm-hmm. and why it resonated with people so much. Like they understood that, that fear of... Mm-hmm getting hit with this medical problem and not being able to do anything about it except you know running a meth cartel or asking for money online on go, go fund, fund me, me. yeah like, go, go fund, fund me. me is not a not a health plan mm-hmm. like go fund me is not a way forward for insulin yeah you know and again like i canada is not a route for insulin but i have i go to canada a few times a year with a group of type 1 diabetics in canada who, who do like camping trips and canoe trips and every time i go I ask around, I say, who needs what? And I get it and I bring it back. Because again, one of my, you know, cisgender white lady privileges is that most people don't bat an eyelash at me coming across the border. I bring them across the border and I give it away. I've given away insulin on my fridge, which is illegal. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I've told, I've, you, you're now the second legislator that I've told that I break the law on a regular basis. Connor Lamb was the other one. I told him at like my parish picnic this past summer. It was like, hey, by the way, I give insulin away to people so they don't die. Yeah. Rock on. Uh, but that's not, you know, like I, I do that because I, I can't stand to see people suffer. Right. And I am in a position now in my life where like I have more than I need and I have the ability to help people. But charity and relying on people to do that is not an effect. It's not a healthcare policy. Mm-hmm. It's not a way to run a society. It's not a way for people to live. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like oh, great, I connected randomly to this person through a Twitter follower and I was able to meet them at a Trader Joe's parking lot and give them three vials of insulin so they would make it to Monday. That's not a strategy. I will do that and I will do it as many times as it takes and I will take whatever punishment would come my way about it, but like, it's not a solution. It's not a long-term solution. Yeah. These experiences with injustice, I either personally or things that we that impact our families kind of inspire us to be advocates, maybe get involved in politics. What are some ways that like Tracy's going rogue, you're going across the border, handing out insulin. What other ways? Uh, I mean, in, you have this podcast that tries to sh- shine a light on what it's like to live with type one. What are some other advocacy organizations that you all are involved in to help shine a light on this issue? I am pretty involved with uh, Beyond Type 1. So they're a nonprofit based out of San Francisco. They're actually the nonprofit that I helped organize the bike ride with. So Bike Beyond was a bike ride that myself and 20 other Type 1s took from New York City to San Francisco. So we biked over over the course of 70 days, 4,100 miles, just to raise awareness, we had we held like picnics along the way to like invite type ones to come together and just build community and talk to each other and help people realize that they're not alone. 
And the team was from all around the world. And Beyond Type 1, their motto or their call is to advocate, educate, and hopefully cure. So they raise money for not just cure efforts, which are great, but there's a lot of other stuff that Type 1s need. We need like help like just kind of getting through the day, help with mental health, and like figuring out those avenues and like identifying Type 1 mental health. Because, you know, we go through this every day. It's, it's pretty, it's kind of hard. Like I didn't realize burnout or Type 1 burnout was a thing until like maybe 12 years in, like because I read about it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And... They use a lot of social media, which, you know, is a really great way to get the word out today. The big, the bike ride, they made a movie out of it. There was a documentary. It's on YouTube now. What's it called? It's called Bike Beyond the Documentary. <laughs> um, it's a really good documentary. <laughs> and it's, it, I've heard, I've heard it from both sides, both the type ones. Type ones really like it because it's like hopeful and it gives them an idea of what can be done if they, you know, want to or try. And then on the other side, type nuns, it kind of gives them a sense of like, oh, like I didn't realize like it was that constant all like all the time kind of thing and it was, a, it was a really great project and I'm really proud of what I did to make that happen but as I, I think that's what is needed just getting those type 1 stories out there after the Manting found insulin back then before that it was a death sentence so people it was like very high on like you know the community watch list like people knew about it because people were dying from it all the time but I think now that we've had insulin for you know almost 100 years it, like that that sense of urgency is glossed on it even though it's a very still very serious people die from it you know every day people don't realize how serious it is i think anymore mm-hmm. and i think i wish people would just understand that it is hard and it is and it can be very serious mm-hmm. so I'm, that's what i'm trying to do with the show trying to find that balance between how serious it is and how important it is for people to know about it yeah it's really it's really an interesting tension you know like you know, you biked across the U.S. You know, I've, I run marathons and run with people, run with other type ones who also run marathons. And it's like, yeah, we are totally, absolutely 300% capable of running marathons. We are 300% capable of doing Ironmans. We can do all of these things. But that does not mean that we are not sick. It does not mean that we are not also constantly working on being able to go out and ride our bikes, being able to go out and put our shoes on, being able to go to the gym. Like there's, there's a lot of extra effort that goes into being able to do these things. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that constant tension between like, yeah, we are strong and we are able and we can pretty much do whatever we want, but it does not mean there's not extra effort to do these things. And none of these things is possible without insulin. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Like none of the, like literally like without insulin, it's like, well, I'm, I can't do anything today. Like that's, that's like the tension of it is, is we look perfectly healthy on the, on the outside. Yeah. But if, if you don't get a juice box in time, you could pass out and die. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Juice box, Skittles, like something. Yeah. Shamelessly eating the honey packets from Starbucks. Not that I've done that or anything. <laughs> so some of the organizations I'm involved in is type one run, which mm-hmm. is usually all type ones. And so I've run, you know, we do casual runs together. It's no fees. There's no dropping. It's all paces. It's just really friendly and a lot of fun. And then Connected in Motion, which is based out of Canada. They do a number of outdoor trips, canoe trip, hiking trip. They do a giant honking adventure every year. This year they were on the Chilkoot Trail, which crosses, like, crosses into Yukon Territory, which is pretty wild. And it's primarily for adults with type one. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's kind of where I, I, I really want to be putting my energies is in adults and young adults with type one. A lot of people think of type one as a kid's disease because 
It tends to happen in childhood and or in early childhood. But you can be diagnosed with type 1 at literally any age. So there are a lot of... And this was... It was, it was a little harder when I was growing up because there wasn't the internet. Mm-hmm. And it was like a lot of things are for kids. And then it seemed like once you turned 18, it was like, peace, good luck. And so I like I, I actually didn't know any other type 1s growing up. And so I just thought, I grew up thinking like, oh, holy crap, I have this super rare disease. Like, I'm the only one. And then when, like, Twitter started being a thing, my boyfriend, husband, that guy, uh, was like, hey, you should get on Twitter. There's lots of people with diabetes on Twitter. <laughs> and I was like, cool. And then I was like, oh, my God. Oh my God, like there, there are others. It's like literally discovering like, oh my God, there are other people just like me. And like, oh no, there's other adults just like me. And like, I never got to, I didn't have the ability to go to diabetes camp when I was a kid. So like being involved with Connected Emotion is like being able to go to diabetes camp and do all the like fun camp stuff, but also as an adult. And we can talk about adult things and like all of the like hard stuff of adult life. And that's been really, valuable for me I actually didn't know about I didn't know the phrase diabetes burnout or diabetes distress until maybe like two or three years ago and I was like oh holy crap like there were definitely three or four times in my life where I had had that and just didn't have the words for it and didn't have the ability to talk about it and so like even having the community around to like say hey this is a thing that you can experience like that's really important to me and I think like for me it's like now that I'm at a point where I'm pretty comfortable and safe and happy with my diabetes care and I'm like at a place of reconciliation with it all. I think my goal right now is to like share whatever I can with whoever needs it and to try and carry the load for them like as much as I possibly can to try and help Mm -hmm. them with the load as much as I possibly can. Yeah. You know, that's just like, that's the rules of the trail. Someone's having a bad day. You take weight off their pack, right? I can carry this for a little while for you. You just, you do you, you get settled, settled and come back to us when you can. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful sentiment. And it's a beautiful sentiment. And it's also not a solution. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we all need to recognize that because we often look at charitable efforts and we say, well, you know, we can just take care of one another. And we can and mm-hmm. we should. And we should also fight for a, a fair and more just system. And I could actually use both of your help in answering one of the a question that I get often. So our, our activism and the path that we choose is often a product of our lived experience. And one of my lived experiences is that I lost a father to an opioid epidemic. And outside of creating the big stomach systemic change in our healthcare system and the way that we view mental health and addiction and the way that we structure rehab, I found a home in advocating for harm reduction, which is kind of deploying policies that help keep people with substance abuse disorders safe and healthy while they're actively in that the throes of addiction. And so one of the ways that you do that is through syringe exchanges and the distribution of a Narcan and Naloxone, which for people who don't know is a overdose reversing drug. So if you OD on an opioid, it's in, typically administered nasally and it stops that, that overdose and kind of pushes people directly into withdrawal. And 
anyway, it's it's saved a lot of lives. In Allegan County, we've seen a 41% decrease in the number of deaths resulting in overdose, while drug use has stayed pretty pretty consistent. And inevitably, when we do a Narcan training and a distribution and we post on Twitter or Instagram, someone will comment like, well, what about insulin? And I think there are a lot of people who are trolls and never really cared about uh, cared about insulin or people with type 1 or even type 2 diabetes or you know reimagining our healthcare system but there are also people who genuinely care and they're like you know we tend to ha- they're like we have money to do this right now but we don't have money to give people insulin which is a a life-saving and necessary uh, necessary drug and so i'm just hoping to to work with you guys to kind of riff on uh, riff on an answer what's like a good compassionate answer that recognizes the real struggle and cost of people who are living with type 1 diabetes and also saying that there is um, a necess- necessary piece of our society that we need to deploy these things like like narcan and treat people who use drugs with dignity as well yeah I think like Humans are, thankfully, complex systems. We can do both. And it's also not a one-to-one comparison. So Narcan is a rescue drug, right? It's, It's like, this situation is urgent right now, right? It's not a maintenance drug, right? It's not something you take every day so that you can survive. You know, for people with type 1 diabetes, insulin is a maintenance drug. It's something we take every day to stay alive. It's something that we take every day just to like function normally. I think a closer equivalent, if somebody wanted to make that equivalency would be for us would be glucagon, which is either a syringe, there's brand new inhalable or like nose puff type Hmm. delivery systems for glucagon that save us in the case of an accidental insulin overdose or some other like malfunction in our diabetes management or some sort of you know, challenge we're having. Had a bad day. Had a bad day. Like it's it's gonna be a real bad day. If you're deploying the glucagon, things have gone seriously bad. But it's also not like the it it's not the oppression Olympics, y'all. Like like just because someone's getting something does not mean that we cannot also work on mm. on insulin. Like for people who are dealing with op- opioid addiction, you know, the situation is urgent. I don't want someone to die because they're rationing insulin. I don't. I also don't want someone to die because they've overdosed on on a medication and need help. The guy, there's, there's something there that can help them. There's funding there to to fund that. It's easy to to deliver. Like I, I just don't understand like why. I don't understand the resistance to it. Like I don't want anybody to die. I don't want anybody to suffer. You know, insulin pricing is my own personal suffering right now, and I will continue to work for that. But congratulations, we can do two things at once. <laughs> and I think that like it's not, they're not exclusive. It's not either or, it's both. Yeah. Yeah. So like Tracy was saying, they're not a one-to-one comparison. You, Sarah, you mentioned life-saving, which Narcan is, but insulin isn't. Insulin is life-sustaining. Narcan is life-saving. Mm-hmm. Glucagon is life-saving. We don't need it all the time, but we take it when we do. So the same with Narcan. And I think it's also the understanding of addiction as it is today. So addiction, we assume it's like the person's fault. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of like the general understandings of diabetes and addiction are they parallel each other. People assume that both sides like did it to themselves. Like it's because of some choices that they made that they're in this situation. So why should we help them? But like in the last few years, opioid addiction specifically has is a result of doctors over prescribing opioids. Big pharma said is like it's okay, it's not addictive. You know, you just you know push it along. Like doctors were incentivized, like give this out to patients. And a lot of people that are dying of overdoses were people that went in because like they had like a, they twisted their ankle and they became addicted to opioids. Mm -hmm. So nowadays, like more and more, it's like, it's kind of like seeping into like the general public. So like we had this idea of an addict, like, you know, 20 years ago today, that addict is, you know, the guy next door, like your lawyer or your, like your accountant. Mm -hmm. So it's affecting a lot more people, which is probably why it's getting a lot more, you know, attention. But I think it's, again, it's like just the understanding of what type 1 is. You know, insulin is a different, very different thing than Narcan. But addiction and diabetes, they're kind of similar in that they're not what people think they are, especially today. And there's a reason why insulin is so expensive is because pharma companies are making it that way. Like for whatever reason, Narcan is cheaper now. It's like their money is there, like you said, and we can use that. So why not use it? So just because like insulin is so expensive now, that should we really just waste all this like grant money or money that's available for Narcan to be used to save people? I don't think so. It's a problem with our healthcare system and the pharma companies. Like they're making the prices as high as they are. And it's not the fact that, you know, someone's getting this, you know, life saving medication when they need it, if they need it. Yeah. It's yeah, again, it's not for funsies. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> no one's doing no one's doing Narcan or Glucocon for funsies. Like it's just it's just not reality. It brings me great joy to hear you guys talk about the solidarity that's that's in this and that we're the target shouldn't be one another and if you have if my neighbor has something it means I don't have it. It's let's talk about where the injustices are for all of us and let's look at the people in power and let's change the system, right? Let's move our crosshairs from one another and stop fighting for the scraps and and look upwards and saying who's profiting from keeping us divided and keeping us fighting amongst one another. So thank you. Thank you for that advice. Yeah, I will say that it's probably, I mean, I you know, type one, the type one demographic isn't a monolith like we don't all think the same yeah and i've definitely seen people that are type ones that have posted those things like what not just here but like in california like you know mm-hmm. all over the place like why am i paying for insulin when like these people are getting their syringes for free i think that hits them personally because syndrome is like mm-hmm. we use syringes yeah. or we used to not so much anymore but like there is that there is that kind of sentiment like they're getting something for free when I should be getting something for, or like I've been paying all this money for all these years. Like, why am I not? And I think, again, it's just goes to like the misunderstanding of addiction and what Narcan is. And I think they're just seeing those like headlines as, oh, Narcan's for free, like for, you know, overdose mm-hmm. victims. And like that can be very triggering given like, you know, the type one experience with healthcare in the U.S. And I think, you know, I, I have family members who have struggled with opioid addiction too. And I think that if you know somebody who's in recovery or even probably somebody who's in like active addiction, they'll tell you that they wouldn't wish this on their worst enemy, right? Mm -hmm. Like they'll, they'll tell you that they wouldn't wish that addiction on anyone. I don't, I wouldn't wish diabetes on, on anyone, you know, even being at an okay place with my diabetes, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Again, it's not, it's not recreational, right? It's not fun. Yeah. Right. It's it's I don't know how to tell people like that they're not the enemy. They're going mm-hmm. through their own thing. 
and that that does not mean that you that does not mean that you are not also suffering. You are also suffering, and that is valid. But they are also suffering too. Like, yeah, I mean, personally, <laughs> we ain't gonna compete on that. It took me a long time to realize that you know my my father's addiction was not a choice, and that's a narrative that I held, a belief that I held for quite some time, even after he died. And it took a lot of it took a, took a lot of reading, it took a lot of meeting other people who are actively managing their addiction and to to really humanize it and understand the complexity of it. There's so much more than what you can see. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when we think about if we think about overregulating the prescription medicine, the oxycodones of the world and other pain management, then you're creating additional barriers for people who that was a maintenance drug for them that was yeah. um a necessary tool in their toolkit to be able to live life and not experience chronic and debilitating pain. And so oftentimes when you think of policy solutions, sometimes we're targeting the wrong the wrong people. The wrong people and and causing kind of more suffering than than really saying because it's harder to take on the the bigger guys, the corporate interests, the people with the money. And yeah, it's just uh it's just interesting. So thank you for drawing those parallels for me. What questions do you guys have for me? Mm. So, you know, I've read your website and kind of know about your policies generally and know where you stand on on healthcare access for everybody. Mm-hmm. What what would you say to your colleagues who don't believe the same thing? And what do you think it will take to change their minds about that? Will they ever change their minds? I don't know. I, I, I think about this a lot because I, I think – I like to believe that we all have – a shared humanity and a shared desire to to do what's right in the world. And that involves taking care of one another, um, especially in the public sphere. And what I find now is that I have a lot of my colleagues who, when you say people over profit and healthcare is a human right, they will say, yeah, I agree. And then when it comes to the difficult part, which is like thinking creatively on how a system can work and the price tag that's involved in that, the public dollars that's involved in that, they start to shy away from the the big systemic change that is necessary and think more incremental. I don't I don't know how to I don't know how to change that, but it's a conversation that we need to keep having and I think that in when you're changing policies, when you're trying to pass legislation, what really moves people are stories. And it's people are going to remember how you make them feel, not necessarily the facts that you've delivered. And I always say that at the end of the day, when a politician, when an elected official is telling you what they believe, you also have to then watch their actions and more importantly, look up their finance reports and see who gave them money. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, we made, I, I made a commitment when I run, ran for office is that we wouldn't take any corporate money. And um, that's not necessarily every cup of tea for every elected official. And, but I, I have to say, like, this is going to, this is going to require dismantling a very powerful industry. And we really need to elect people who are willing to, to work through that difficult time and and work with the um the industry to to make it 
more regulated and make it fair, make it um, actually work for the people it was designed to work or intended to work for initially. Big change has never come from benevolent elected officials or benevolent politicians. It's always come from the grassroots demanding it. And I think that what we're going to have to do as a citizenry is just pay more attention to the people who are in public office and demand that they take action because they actually have the the power to do so. So I think it's going to be a collective effort. Do you think that that solution comes from a federal level or do you think that the will is more likely to come from a state level too? Because I think about like California and having mm-hmm. Medi-Cal. Yep. And I think that I, I, I don't live in California. I have no idea how Medi-Cal works and impacts other people's lives. But part of me wonders and, and like, stays awake at night thinking about what happens if the ACA falls mm-hmm. and am I going to die? <clears throat> am I going to die? Am I going to lose this house? Like, what am I going to do? Because those, the, that sounds like hyperbole, but that's reality for thousands of people, not just people with type one diabetes is like, what, you know, what can the state do to prevent that? Which, I mean, there's no other word to describe it other than calamity happening like Mm -hmm. is there will to do that is there like it does the state play a role there or does that have to come from the federal government or for it to stick it can absolutely come from the state level as we work towards creating a a new system at the federal level and we just think about canada right like canada's universal system didn't start from the Canadian government, it started from a territory. Mm-hmm. And we have that same kind of flexibility in the state. Now, you're funding it um, with a lot more state dollars than you would if it's a federal system, but there's dollars to draw down and there's ways to think about expanding access and expanding care. You know, a concrete example of stuff that I've been working on that's not necessarily related to type one, but is about we have complete control over our Medicaid dollars. Mm -hmm. And right now there's a lot of barriers for adults to access dental care. So oftentimes you can get your cleaning and then you can get kind of emergency dental pretty easily. But there's a lot of barriers if you just need maintenance dental. And so we were saying like, well, if we remove those barriers and just allowed dentists to deliver care to people who use medical assistance, mm-hmm. then we're going to see them relying less on the emergency room, which does not have the expertise to treat any sort of dental needs and often results in, right, dent- if you have something going on with their teeth, it's a lot of pain. So what the ER can do is prescribe you opioids. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. So we're, you know, we're looking at kind of how to how to streamline that system. So there is a lot of flexibility. And I have to say, you know, I'm 11 months in, I'm on the health committee and I am, we have a a deeply, deeply complex and hard to navigate healthcare system and I'm in it and I'm trying to learn everything that I can learn about it. And, you know, through that kind of discovery, I'm learning that there is a lot of opportunities to expand access to care and to remove barriers from people. And, you know, we've had a bill, I think that's been introduced in Harrisburg for the last 10 years. Um, creating a a single 
payer system, which means that the the state would be essentially kind of the insurer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd still have hospital networks that operate. It's a pretty substantial bill. The prime on that has been Representative Pam Delicio, who's out on the eastern side of the state. And, you know, I try to work with her to, to reintroduce it and, you know, see how we can gain some some traction behind that. But yeah, there are there's legislation that exists that totally says that it's it's feasible. It's just gonna take political will, mostly political courage, to to fight for that. And I think one of the things that people might fear, and maybe I feel differently about this because I have experienced you know social socialized medicine, oh no. Is like I feel like maybe people just don't have an an understanding of like what it looks like to like Mm -hmm. walk out of a doctor's office without a medical bill hanging over your head. Like I I think that people don't have any inter have no knowledge of what that interaction even looks like. Like how you even would interact with a healthcare system that wasn't run by Mm an insurer that you're paying that's tied to your employment. Like I, I, I think that people may fear it because they don't have a model for it. They don't have a mental model for how it could work or how it would work. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how to lessen people's fear of that other than being like, Hey, look, my 22 year old roommate had a stroke and spent a month in hospital and didn't go bankrupt and mm-hmm. was able to just continue on with their life. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know how else to tell people that like, like, I don't know. I don't know what other metrics I can I can give mm-hmm. other than like there are millions of people in Britain who aren't dead or bankrupt because or millions of people in Canada who aren't dead or bankrupt. Yeah, because their government has said that healthcare is important for everybody to have. Yeah, we need to spark the collective imagination of like the world that can be, not the world the way it is. And we're so used to navigating and being so um, innovative in the way that we have to navigate all of these barriers that it's really hard to kind of step back and look holistically and look at the future and saying like, what can this be? And, you know, that's going to take a lot. It's going to take us reclaiming words like freedom. Mm-hmm. And in saying that, you know, if you have to choose between paying for a prescription and paying your rent, you're not actually free. If you're tied to a job because you have a chronic disease, you're not actually free. And, you know, if you can't start a business because of that very reason, right, what freedom of choice is there? Mm-hmm. And so if we kind of return the public sector to focus on where are our common needs and how do we invest public dollars into into that, into our education system, into our public infrastructure, into public health, into public housing, and you know, make sure that people's basic needs are met. Then we give everyone a solid platform to actually achieve uh, self-determination and being able to like live their lives while their health and well-being is, is kind of cared for. And I don't know how to do that. I need your help. <laughs> I'm telling you as a, as a constituent that I'm here for it. Like, let's, let's go. And I think, yeah, Sarah is right in that there is a lot of muddying of the waters. Like, there's people kind of actively against the idea of, like, a universal healthcare system. So they use those, those like, words incorrectly or they try to change the definitions of it. So freedom is being able to choose your own doctor, which is what we have, or... People love their health insurance. It's like we don't 
where people love their doctors, they don't love their health insurance. I've never so loved they, health insurance. Exactly. <laughs> I've never, there's never once been a time where I've been like, yes, insurance is great. And so, and so for the people that are just getting like the headlines on like, you know, on their newsfeed every now and again, it's very easy for them to believe the, the politicians or the people that are telling them these things because they don't have enough time to like look into it and see like, oh, actually socialized medicine might actually be more freedom and more choice and less time with me dealing with these people that really don't have the best, my best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. So it is, again, people need to be aware and be, I guess, educated in a sense mm-hmm. to what these words actually mean. And like, I get, and the interest behind them. So like politicians that are in favor of keeping, you know, private healthcare alive, like where are they getting their money from? Like mm-hmm. what is informing that opinion when you're comparing it to like a socialized healthcare system, which sound just on the face of it sounds easier and better for everybody involved. But again, there's like those people that are working against it. So it's kind of hard to find that information. So I guess my question for you is, how would you advise people to educate themselves in the political climate that we're in, especially to their own self-interest? Because there's a lot of voting against your self-interest just because like, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, party lines, especially in the US, we only have the two options. So like, you know, typically you vote how you always voted. Mm -hmm. Um, But nowadays, those like the issues are becoming more and more apparent to people that like how they affect their everyday lives. So how would you advise people to get more active and like people like you said that notice injustices, but like, where do they go to start like addressing them? Yeah, that's a great question. I so I'm a Democrat. And but when I was 18, I grew up in a very apolitical family. So I turned 18. And I was like, I was like, very into like, what are the things I can do at a certain ages? When you're 17, you can do a giant eagle advantage guard. So I was like 18, registering to vote. Yes. And um, so I, you know, I, I think I asked my mom for advice, like, which I register as, you know, and she's like, well, register as an independent and because you should always just have the things that are close to your heart that you want to see in the world and, you know, select the people who are going to be the best stewards of that vision. And I think that's really wise in a lot of ways. It doesn't really work in Pittsburgh where, you know, most of the elections are decided in the primary because it's this heavily Dem and that's a just a drawback of our two-party system. But I really I like I like the sentiment of that. And I would encourage everyone to kind of do that internal audit of like you can't you can't save the world. You have a limited capacity, um, whether it comes to empathy or time. And so what are the things that are near and dear to your heart? Where have you ex- experienced injustice? Where have you seen injustice? And what would you like to do to change it? And I think, you know, once you have that, you've done that internal audit and you kind of know the things that you care about, look for organizations that are already doing that work. You know, I think this is, especially people with privilege, sometimes they experience an injustice and they're like, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to start my own organization when really there are folks who have been doing the work for quite some time. And so how do you, I'm always, I'm, I'm from the nonprofit space and there's a lot of really smart, capable people, but there's also a lot of overlap in, in a lot of services and programs that exist. So kind of how do you connect with people and things that already exist? Look for other groups that are already doing mm-hmm. something to try to solve the problem that you too would like to solve and connect with them. I think, you know, starting small, starting in the nonprofit sphere is like in a, in a charitable sense is a great way to get involved in advocacy. And then make sure you connect with your 
their local elected officials. So, you know, state representatives are extremely accessible. It's, we have, uh, our base is 60,000 in our district. So, you know, our office is right on a main street. In, it's in my old in, hair salon. Yes, <laughs> it is in an old hair salon. Um, That's how I got the idea to ask yeah. you to be on here. I walked by it. I was walking by it and I was going to get cake at Butter. Butterwood. Butterwood. Yeah. Butterwood. I used to work there. I actually, what? I started campaigning and I was, I would work there in the evenings so and funny. people would come in and they'd I be see. like, I heard about this woman running for office. I'd be like, it's me. Hello. It's me. I'm serving Want some vegan cake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, it, yeah, I was just walking by. I was like, oh, wow. I think it was when you like just moved into it. Yeah. So I was like, oh, wow, she's here. Maybe I should ask her to be on the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's like, see what happens. Lo and behold. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I'm sitting in my office most days, so you can just kind of walk in. And uh, if I'm there, I'll, I'll sit and talk with any constituent about any issue. A lot of people come in for state services. But, you know, your elected representative should make the time, at least, you know, 30 minutes to meet with you about an issue that you care about and to hear about your story. And that's, that's what people are going to have to do. Do because when you're in Harrisburg, the amount of registered lobbyists that are walking around in the hallways, right? You just, we have to create um, an environment where people feel like their voices matter and that, and they do, they do. If they get to the decision makers, they can be very, very impactful. But we're fighting against a system that has a lot of money and capacity. And there are, you know, lobbyists get a bad rap, but like, you know, the library has a lobbyist and, you know, they're really good organizations that, you know, feel like they have to buy into that system to to be heard and to get in front of people who have the power. But citizens should also be able to to meet and they should demand a response from their elected officials. So, you know, I think getting there when elections come up. So right now, we're, you know, we're going into 2020. There's a lot of talk about it's presidential year. But in the off years, there's state elections. And in the odd years, there's municipal elections in Pennsylvania and in Allegheny County. And all of those really matter. So, you know, create your your list of things you care about. Find out the organizations that are doing that work. If not, you can start one. And, and also connect with the people who are, you know, fighting for the things that you're also fighting for and, you know, help them get elected or, you know, go visit them and get them to change their minds. And, you know, if they don't, maybe you're the person who's supposed to step up and run for that position. So don't ever rule that out because we need more working class people, more people who are closer to the suffering in positions of power, designing legislation and solutions. And I think that it's, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that, you know, we just had an election two weeks ago and yeah. it was, you know, it's for people who are being judges, who are district attorneys. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, you, this isn't a presidential race, but it's like, these are the stepping stones that people take mm-hmm. to positions of power. They, these are stepping stones to being representative, to being a senator, mm-hmm. to being like on a higher, higher level position. So it matters. It matters who we're putting into the pipeline. It matters who is standing for these seemingly minor positions now mm-hmm. you know and my I, I grew up um as the daughter of a, a union mechanic who really like pressed upon me he's like you gotta go and vote you gotta go and vote he never really asked me like what way to vote but like <laughs> <laughs> he never really said like you know you should vote this way but you know 
I think like my whole belief system is really like formed around around that and the fact that like there's there's things in the world that we can do to make life better for all of us and that we should do it and if it's like showing up to vote on a Tuesday morning you know like go and do that you know I'm really fortunate that my polling place is literally like 500 feet from mm-hmm. my front door and they all love my dog. So like, I'm going to go and do that. You yeah. know, and I, I served on an elections board actually when you got elected, I was, oh. I was serving at the polling place um, when you got elected. And I think like those are minor ways that you can be involved. that can have a big impact is to serve on your local elections board. They're mm-hmm. almost always looking for people. Yeah. You can write yourself in and get yourself elected. Ask me how I know. Um, <laughs> your one vote. Maybe Judge of elections. Vote, maybe the only vote that you need. And if you have spare time, if you have time to do that, like that's that's a way that you can do that. But these are all like, you know, small steps that we can take to to larger positions of influence and power. And that sounds really weird and creepy and like. Like influence and power, but like no, it's it's a way that you can be like, hey, you, my neighbor, you should come and vote. We have yeah. an election today. Yeah, and there there's this this sentiment that exists that like politics is icky, power is icky, mm-hmm. and really both of those are mechanisms to create positive change in the world. Mm-hmm. And we need to start again, like shifting our thought from this is something that is gross and I don't want to be a part of to this is actually something if the right people are in place can be an agent for change and create um, ameliorate a lot of suffering and create a lot of really good things that can help a lot of people yeah definitely yeah and I do think that our society could benefit from type ones being or becoming elected officials because of our experience we obviously it's just with type one but that's a chronic illness in the U.S. So which a lot of people deal with. And it's a story that I don't think gets heard a lot and would be really powerful to hear from like an elected official, like, Mm -hmm. you know, type one kids at camp, seeing their, you know, state representative having type one going through what they do. And I think that would kind of really inspire a lot of people to kind of get more involved with like, because a lot of what we deal with is a product of the system that we live in. Mm -hmm. So like the healthcare system. Insulin is so expensive because it's allowed to be that expensive. Mm-hmm. Our test strips are really expensive because they're allowed to be that way. And there's a very real, like, life-threatening results of that. And we can do – there's a lot more that we can do about it than we, I think, realize or give ourselves credit to be able to do. Good talk. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Like, do you – I guess, like, do you feel like you have some better understanding about type 1, like, having met Walt and I, having met, you know – Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yes. You know, I'd like to, and and maybe this is like, you know, maybe this is our follow-up episode. It's like, what legislation have we, have we written and advocated for since then? But no one is ever going to write legislation that impacts individuals with type one more than individual, like more than individuals with type one. Like I will never know what it is like to navigate that world. So your voice is absolutely necessary when we are thinking about legislation to draft. And I think, you know, there is some legislation that's floating around in Harrisburg around capping prices for for insulin and things like that. But if we aren't including individuals with type 1 around that table, there might be some negative consequences yeah. that were completely unintended. So, you know, your voices are absolutely vital in that. And then I have a better understanding, not necessarily how to 
write legislation for individuals with type 1, but how to include individuals with type 1 around the table Mm -hmm. to help think about what we could write and what we can advocate for. And I think that's the most important part because you can't ever, as an elected official, know everything about everything. Sure. So any final thoughts, Sarah or Tracy? Anything that you'd like the type 1 world to know? You know, the thing that's really helped me a lot in the last couple of years is just like knowing that I'm not an only that um, the feelings and the thoughts that I have had about my type one, about living with type one, which are different things, just there's like a fine line there, but those are different things. Um, Just know that you're not alone. I am accessible on the internet. Like if you feel alone in your type one, like reach out to me on Instagram. I'm the flying fraction. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I will respond. Like I'm, I'm here for you. Like there's times where I wish somebody had said that for me. So like I'm, I'm here to be a life raft if I can for whoever needs it. So that's the only thing I got to say. Thank you. Sarah, um, what would you like the type one world to know of Pennsylvania? But of course, you know, yeah. especially I think in terms like, what would you suggest that they do? Like given what you know now, like what would you like really encourage them to do after this? I would say find out who your state and local elected officials are, call them up schedule a meeting with them and share their story because those individuals in power need to understand what it's like to live life with type one. And, you know, just getting a sense from you both, like it is not in, it's not an easy disease to navigate with all the structures that we've built. So I just want to kind of thank everyone for their tenacity in kind of going through this process and, you know, having the energy left at the end to be able to advocate for one another and to build community. I think that's really, really special. And it's how we are going to make the world a better place. Here, here. Cheers. And low snacks for everyone. Yeah, and low snacks. <laughs> Free low snacks. <laughs> I'm 74 right now, so oh, no. it might be juice box time. <laughs>